In Search of Black Power. I'm your host, Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research for LBS. I'm Rashim, Independent Scholar and Researcher. So today, I'm going to talk about white environmentalism and environmental racism. So this is an interesting topic for me because I grew up wanting to be like the black crocodile hunter. What? And I could picture it. <laughs> I had a huge interest in environmentalism and animals, but from an early age, I kind of realized that this was coded as something not central to the identity of a black child growing up in the inner city. Like I remember looking for buying a book for the tr um, to hunt for tracks, like footprints in the snow. But when you have no snow and when you have nowhere to hunt for tracks, right? But as I started doing academic analysis and political analysis, I realized that this environmentalism is a very ideological space, but it has real political implications, especially in terms of because it's coded as white, some black people are taught not to care about the environment. And that has political implications for us as a people. Mm. So in this talk, I wanted to walk us through some of the caricatures of environmentalism, some of the limitations of it, but also some of the ways that sometimes black folks might overcompensate and ignore the environmental impacts to our detriment. So I want to start off, Rasheem, you're a painter. And this painting <laughs> is one of the most central to American environmentalism. This is The Valley of the Yosemite by Albert Burstall, 1864. So it's going to be on the screen for our viewers to see. But give me some art um, interpretation, art analysis about what you're seeing here. Uh, it's, very, it's very Manifest Destiny. It's very frontier to me. It's very... Um, I, I, I'm also struck by... Uh, it feels wild, not wild, wild west, like mm -hmm. settler. It it just gives yeah. me settler energy to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's use a few visual clues from the actual visual text here. Okay. So you have the light coming from behind the bend. Uh -huh. So again, it's like the light of enlightenment, the light of God beckoning you forward. Yeah. You have, you know, not quite a God's eye view, but you have this beautiful panoramic view. Mm -hmm. And like the more you can see, the more powerful you are, the more you control. So this is a very livable space. Like this space is very calm, very inviting. It's asking you almost to build a house there. And you can see the mm -hmm. prestige, like the majesty of the mountains is really sort of signifying like this is God's inheritance to you. Mm -hmm. Right. So that if we part. go on to the next painting, this is American Progress by John Guest, 1872. Only eight years after the previous painting. And I think the link that you're making is very evident with this text, and again, this is these are some of the foundational texts of American landscape painting and American environmentalism. Because mm -hmm. we're protecting the landscapes, but to what effect? Because they mm -hmm. symbolize this type of stuff for America. So briefly, because we have here, in the darkness on the left, Native Americans running. Mm. But not scared, not like, oh my God, they're coming to kill me. It's like, even the hand up, it's almost like, we know you're coming, just come. Right, right, right. It's right. Almost right. Let's move it. out of the way for you. It's almost like they're like breaking, the like they're breaking they're making way. They're right. breaking. They're breaking the terrain open. Mm -hmm. You see the buffalo in the background. You see a dangerous-looking wild animal of some sort in the bottom left-hand corner. I told you when I saw it earlier. This picture is scary. Yes, <laughs> you can see. Looks but scary to me. and part of the way you hide the terror of colonization is put a beautiful white face on it. Like this is Columbia, mm -hmm. like District of Columbia. This is Columbia. Wow. <laughs> right. This is the figure, feminized figure of American progress and manifest destiny. So if you go to past Columbia, you see that she's literally carrying behind her, that's telegraph wire. Mm -hmm. So she's bringing knowledge, enlightenment, progress to seemingly unsettled, 
Because these people, they look nomadic. They don't have houses. You don't see teepees. You don't see a civilization here. You don't see a village. Mm -hmm. And you see they have a port in the background, organized commerce. You see railroads and organized agriculture, all being bought by white settlers. She's also, similar to the other picture, very ethereal, very heavenly, you know, because she has this white flowing robe. Like yeah. this, this is, and you know. She's having sand. Ain't no stopping her. Oh, yeah. Right. This is the vision of dominating the landscape that some people have tied to this idea of a frontier as the space that we reproduce American masculinity. Mm-hmm. So some people have called this the Turner Frontier Hypothesis, where you got to remember, we didn't always, America, not we, white people in America didn't own all this land originally. Mm-hmm. The theory for some people was that it's good to colonize the West because as you, you know, hunt elk, as you enjoy the landscape, you make it fertile, you make it serve civilization and not hedonism. Mm. You learn how to protect your family by killing natives. You become a man. You become mm. a real man in this mm-hmm. landscape. And there was actually a huge concern with masculinity after basically America got to California and was like, there's no more free land, the frontier is closed. Like, where are we going to reproduce virile masculinity mm-hmm. if we no longer have the frontier? And for some people, the answer was, well, we have to preserve nature. We have to preserve chunks of land so that we can have these, it's like you, you called it, like Westworld. Mm-hmm. These masculinity um, scene parks right. where you play out settler and you hunt elk and you dominate the landscape, you mm-hmm. climb the rocks. And people have associated this with loving the landscape, but others have associated this with dominating the landscape. Right. So you have here, and look at the next slide, this dude who looks like on Bizarro World, Jim Carrey. That is John Muir. He looks like a Westworld character. He looks like somebody <laughs> who is twirling his mustache because he's tied the damsel to the railroad tracks. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, but he is a world-renowned American environmentalist. Mm-hmm. However, if you look at the things he actually says about Native Americans and black people, they're extremely racist, right? So just a few of these quotes. Thousands of tired, nerve-shaking, over-civilized people are being... Uh, beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wilderness is a necessity, that the mountain parks and reservations are useful not only as fountains of timber and irrigations, but as fountains of life. So again, if you're in the city, you're nerve-shaking, you're over-civilized, you need access to these spaces, not as anything that like does anything good for them, but what's good for you, right? It's an exploitative relationship of preserving nature, mm-hmm. right? Next quote, occasionally a good countenance may be seen among these mono-Indians, but these, the first specimens I've seen, were mostly ugly, and some of them were altogether hideous. Dirt on their faces was fairly stratified. It seemed so ancient and so undisturbed that it might almost possess a geological significance. Somehow, they seemed to have no place in the landscape, and I was glad to see them fade out of, uh, fade out of sight down the pass. Isn't it interesting, two things. One, uh, the first quote, over-civilized. And and it seems like in this one, not civilized enough. Mm-hmm. And also people who are uh, from there, who are indigenous to that area, he, for, for him to be such a naturalist, I was glad to see them. Basically, like, I, I like their land. I like this environment. But, you know, I don't like seeing them mm-hmm. in, in this space. Well, he, he is presenting the trope what's called the noble savage. Mm-hmm. And the noble savage is, again, I want them to embody all of the... Uh, things that I fear I am missing. Mm. You know, if I'm over-civilized, if I'm nervous, I want them to be carefree. We see this with Mm. black people. And even he says, the Negroes are easygoing and merry, making a great deal of noise and doing little work. One energetic white man working with Will can easily pick as much cotton as half a dozen Sambos and Sallies. 
I'd love to see that. So, like, environmentalists, if this your king, right? <laughs> this is just a pure example of yeah. just sort of deep-seated environmental racism, right? Because he's seeking to preserve the landscape as a space to reproduce white masculinity. And so, shockingly enough, not surprising that black people begin to turn on environmentalism when they see this as the kind of context to it. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you want to briefly talk about some of the other folks you found that reflected this uh, yeah, mentality? Yeah, just really quick. Um, some of the things in terms of the connection between these natu- uh, national parks and him prom- and John Muir. Is that how mm-hmm. I say it? Yeah. John Muir promoting them um, in one of his... Pro- pro- Protégés? No, promotion ter- materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, as to Indians, most of them are dead or civilized into useless innocence. Mm-hmm. Uh, just really interesting, just that context or ju- just that that uh, concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muro and his followers also, uh, they're, they're remembered because of their respect for non-human life and wild places. And it's interesting, and also how this expanded to the boundaries of moral c- Concern. So there was a few environmental uh, racists, um, Madison Grant, Harry Fearful Osborne. There's quite a few. Um, some of them, uh, I will, I'll go to Madison Grant first. He was a wildlife zoologist. He was instrumental in creating the Bronx Zoo. He founded the first organization dedicated to preserving the American bison. Um, and also did other things like wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race or The Race of, or the Racial Bias of European History and Pseudoscientific Work of White Supremacists that Warns of the Decline of the Nordic People. Uh, these folks determine not only what species were, were most valuable, but they also d- determined uh, what people, right? Very, very strong connection to eugenics, very strong connection to these are valuable and deserving people and here are some that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, also, their concepts of wilderness and conservation very much connected to their views and, and views about uh, civilization. Um, I mean, I could go on and yeah. on about yeah. Um, but yeah, so much of them. It's, um, people think that this is just something that kind of is an affectation of like rich liberals, right? Mm-hmm. But this was a huge part of building America. So there was this thing called the Fresh Air Fund. And the idea was that these immigrants coming in from Italy and Germany, um, they weren't they weren't civilized into proper whiteness, right? So you take them out into the woods, you teach them how to like live in the woods. You, that's how you make them American. You kind of push them away from drinking and fighting and all these things you associate with immigrants. Mm-hmm. And this was a now they're taking young black people mm-hmm. on these wilderness trips. And so the racial politics of environmentalism is huge. So it's mm-hmm. not surprising, given how people think about environmentalism, that people think it's worthless or worse, um, detrimental, right? So in terms of it being detrimental, there are a lot of stereotypes associated with environmentalism that begin to impact black people and our property, mm-hmm. and just in terms of our psychology. So there's a thing called the Endangered Species Act. This is what a lot of people think about, the so-called snowy owl. There was a big push to save the snowy owl, still is. Like, think Dumb and Dumber when they go to the benefit. It's an owl they're trying to save, mm-hmm. right? And of course, they kill, <laughs> right? So, but what the Environmental Species Act does, it allows you to take someone's property rights away. Like, you can't develop your land if they find the endangered species on that. Right. And the right wing in the 80s and 90s went wild, talking about how insane this was. The government's trying to take away your land to save a stupid owl. They don't care about you. They just want to control you. Mm-hmm. And this weaves its way into black political thinking because there is a strain of what some people call libertarianism in the black p- 
political thought, which is like the government is bad, leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Now, when white people do it, it's usually to like leave me alone so I can be a white supremacist. <laughs> black people, it's like just leave me alone. I don't. I know you care about these owls, but I need to develop this land because mm-hmm. I need to eat. And for all these reasons, there is just this huge push um, for some people to say environmentalism doesn't matter. But how I think this impacts black politics is think about the politics of environmental racism. So the Bible of environmental racism, literally they called it this in the New York Times, is Dumping in Dixie by Robert Bullard. Mm-hmm. And the entire idea of environmental racism is that capitalism produces environmental negatives, pollution, noise, chemicals. And because of racism and lack of political power, all of these things are concentrated more in black communities and we're suffering more because of it. So... This frame kind of centers the importance of environmental thinking in a way that challenges the notion that environmentalism is about owls and white people having concerns about their masculinity. So I'm just going to read a quote from the text so we get an idea of the actual scale of the danger of ignoring environmental impacts because we adopt that frame of environmentalism doesn't matter. So here's the quote. The entire Gulf Coast region especially Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas, have been ravaged by lax regulation and unbridled production. Polluting industries exploit the pro-growth, pro-job sentiment exhibited by the poor, working class, and minority communities. Industries such as paper mills, waste disposal, and treatment facilities, and chemical plants, searching for operational space, found these communities to be logical choices for their expansion. Polluting smokestacks to some individuals were a visible sign that plants were operating and employing people. The smell of industrial operations was promoted as economic progress. Mm. With civic minded individuals advocate against economic progress. For example, a paper mill spewing its stench and poison in one of Alabama's poverty written black belt counties let Governor Governor Wallace to declare, yeah, that's the smell of prosperity. Sure does sound smells sweet, doesn't it? Similar views were reported by public officials in West Virginia, Louisiana, Texas, Chemical Corridor. He continues. He's talking about West Virginia now. Mm. Statewide, more than 10,000 West Virginians were employed in the chemical industry. The Union Carbide chemical plants have been in the valley for six decades, dating back to World War I. Dirty air and odors have long been a fact of life in the Kanawha Valley and in um, Institute. To some residents in the valley, Union Carbide had meant prosperity in an economically impoverished state. Without Union Carbide, some felt this would be a ghost valley. The company represents the sight and smell of money. The average salary of a worker at three local carbine plants is more than $600 a week. The others, the future pulling industries, represented a potential health threat, a future Bhopal. Local fears were heightened after the 1984 poison gas leak at a Union Carbide plant in Bhopal, India, that killed 3,400 persons and maimed another 100,000. People became concerned that such an incident could happen here in their community. This was especially the case for residents of the Institute who lived so close and downwind from the Union Carbide plant. The plant was also manufacturing the same methyl isocyanide, MIC, responsible for the Bhopal disaster. The new safety and emergency system installed at the plant proved to be flawed. This fact was born out on August 11, 1985, when a toxic mixture of chemicals, <laughs> mixture used to produce a pesticide called Temlik, used mostly in potatoes and bananas, sent a poisonous plume of gas over the institute and sent 135 people to the hospital. The leak continued for about 15 minutes minutes, causing residents to experience breathing problems, burning eyes, chest tightness, headaches, nausea, and dizziness. It was only because of the change in the batching process. The batching chemical that ends with MIC was cut off at the previous step. One step from the final product, the Institute cannot become another Bhopal. 
The plant officials did not sound the public alarm until 20 minutes after the gas leak began because of human error and incorrect readings. The EPA subsequently ruled that Union Carbide's emergency notification took too long, and the EPA's investigation of the Institute plant revealed this incident was not the only time deadly MIC had leaked from the plant. The government investigation showed that MIC links had occurred over the previous five years. 61 MIC links had occurred over the previous five years. Mm. So this is the downside of ignoring environmental thought in our community, that we get so obsessed with the civic narrative of that's for white people, we need these jobs, we've been denied access to economic opportunity, if they got it, we want it. Mm-hmm. And the Bhopal disaster, I'm not going to show any photos of the deaths, but this is a horrible, horrible 3,500 people dead. And the idea that this was actually occurring downstream from like a HBCU mm. in West Virginia. I think shows the stakes of ignoring environmental thought in our community. Yeah, I mean, um, according to some research, black Americans are exposed to 56% more pollution than they actually produce. Latinx Americans are exposed to 63% more pollution, and white Americans are exposed to 17% less pollution than they produce. Native Americans are also uh, suffering. So when it comes time for a plant or... Um, something being built, uh, we often see that wherever the runoff is from that, it's going to be, it's going to largely impact black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it's also this way in which capitalism is prioritized over people constantly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to kind of wrap up with, um, I want to just do a thought experiment, right? Because I feel like we talk about these things in the abstract, but we need to kind of have some idea of how these things work in reality. So here's the thought experiment. Right now, gas prices are pretty high. Okay. This hurts working class black people because they have to pay to drive their cars. Think about it in the context of gentrification. Mm-hmm. You can't live in the middle of the city, have to live further from your job. You drive more, you pay more. This pisses people off. They want cheap gas. We actually drill a decent amount of oil here in America now. Part of the problem is that we don't refine our oil in the United States. Mm-hmm. We refine a lot of oil overseas because it's an incredibly dirty process because that's Black stuff that comes out of the ground, it's not what you put in your car. Mm-hmm. has to be a lot of refinement. So there's actually an argument. You can actually see the, um, the little um, piece here that it is the lack of refining capacity, of refining oil into gas. That's why gas prices are so high in America. Because what actually happens is that like, one of them went offline, one refinery went offline, mm-hmm. and that just destroyed gas supply for like, the whole country, and it just jacked prices up all over the place. So here we have economic needs. People need people want cheap gas. But then you have environmental concerns. Because if you know anything about environmental racism, the one thing people probably do know is Cancer Alley. Mm. So what does produce Cancer Alley? This string of black communities in Louisiana that have elevated cancer rates, a lot of it's oil refining. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, Robert Bullard from Dumping and Dixie. While the newly created city was able to keep new plants out, the petrochemical pileup continued unabated beyond St. Gabriel's border in Louisiana. I bet you money there's some 20 plants right now just around St. Gabriel's, um, Schneider said. Nearly twice as many as there were when the incorporation drive began. She's not even close. There are now 30 large petrochemical plants within 10 miles of her house, most of them outside the city limits. 
13 are within a three-mile radius of her home. The nearest facility only a mile away is the world's largest manufacturer of polystyrene, also known as styrofoam. Stories of fed-up Louisianans like Schneidall um, fight back against corporate polluters have gotten worldwide media attention over the last year as rafts of enormous new petrochemical facilities take shape along the Mississippi River corridor. Much of the focus has been on the potential hazards posed by specific plants, including the 9.4 billion plastic factory that for most of the plants has built in St. James Parish. Um, so yeah, so the last sentence is that indeed the stretch of Mississippi River between the New Orleans and Baton Rouge has been named Cancer Alley because of its concentration of petrochemical facilities. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? People want and need cheap gas because mm-hmm. the economic impact of gas is high, but refining gas as we currently do it makes Cancer Alley worse. Mm-hmm. I think you have to have the answer. Oh, I got the answer right now. I wonder if one of the, I mean, I'm curious about some of the things that have been brought up. And I know that we don't have enough time to cover it here. That's something that maybe our listeners can comment on. Um, I love that little teaser at the end. But I'm wondering (laughs) if one of those things that have come up would be like, you know, public transportation or um, sustainable sustainable resources, more sustainable resources Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's a long-term solution, but I think people would say, how do you solve the problem in the short term? Right. You know, um, I would say that you could potentially refine more gas here in America because it's not fair. Because what we're really doing is we're exporting our environmental racism overseas. Mm. And this goes back to white racist environmentalists being like, don't refine it here in America. We refine it in Mexico. Right. Let them deal with the pollution. Right. So this is where having an internationalist and pan-Africanist lens is important. Because it's not like we don't refine gas. We mm-hmm. just put the brown people, give them a cancer alley. Right, 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 right. right so right. what we need to do is we need to have standards. I would say for in the short term, refine gas here. Mm-hmm. But have it applied to American levels of environmental safety. Mm-hmm. It's going to be more expensive. So you have to subsidize it. Can we put can we put the refineries in the area where that picture was taken at the top? Can we <laughs> put it right in the middle of Yosemite Valley? Yeah, can we put it over there just as a big fu? Yeah, I have a, a, a mountain climber named Connor. <laughs> yeah, just swims through a big vat of petrochemicals. No, I mean again, the idea is that no one should have to deal with this environmental evil. But the reality is that we have to plan strategically because we can't get everything we want, right? Because again, if regular people see gas being eight bucks a gallon. They're going to be like another version of like, I don't care about that snowy owl. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care about that dead fish in the river. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to get to my job. Yeah. So you can subsidize gasoline prices. They do it most other places on the planet. But you just need to have the political will to do it. And you need to do it by doing things like taxing the windfall profits of these petrochemical companies making billions of dollars off this mm-hmm. stuff. Right. So it's not easy. But some people would say refine no gas at all. Mm-hmm. But reality is people not trying to hear that. Right. We cannot shift to all public transit or all green technology right now. Mm-hmm. And in reality, if they even green tech, if you go to the, this next slide, mm-hmm. it's not an accident that they were doing a coup in Bolivia soon after the governor, the person who runs Bolivia, Evo Morales, denied Western companies the ability to take their lithium, which mm-hmm. is what you use to make batteries and things like Teslas. Mm-hmm. So even having a green economy, unless you deal with imperialism and racism, it's going to shift these these political problems just to other parts of the world mm-hmm. right so just having teslas is not a solution i mean i right. think unfortunately even having batteries in public transit like having green buses mm-hmm. it's not a solution if you're doing coups to get the lithium from bolivia 
Right. So this is where having intelligent analysis of movements comes in, because I didn't get to all the parts of the book. But one of the concerns I had about the book is that this movement that was more grassroots in the 80s and 70s, powered by the church, has now become really ingratiated into the nonprofit industrial complex. Mm. And if you actually look at, um, I actually have to see if I can bring them back up. All right, Mike, I'm putting these slides back in. <laughs> Just a couple of pictures. <laughs> so if you go to this one picture, and this is page 90 in the book, you can see that 75, um, a, a large percentage of the people involved in these voluntary organizations, the number one place is the church. So what does that mean that this movement that was so central in the church is being now put into this nonprofit and legal infrastructure? Mm-hmm. And if you go to the next slide, again, this is one chart in the book. You don't have to read everything. Just go to the last question. The benefits that the community derives from the facilities far outweigh the negatives. And even in the midst of cancer alleys, even in the midst of environmental racism, a stunning number of people said yes to that question. Mm. So you can't just adopt that white environmentalism, oh, we're just going to care about the snowy owls and ignore everything mentality with black people. Because even after, and these are places where they had environmental racism movements, education movements, and even still, I mean, there are exceptions. There are places where it's far lower, 13%, 18%, but it goes as high as 49% in Dallas. So this mm-hmm. is the reality is that we're going to have to struggle with the, not just the need for jobs, but this, the, the trauma we have around poverty. If you look at the other questions, they're like, did the facility provide jobs? Like, not really. Mm-hmm. A decent percentage said not really, but they might someday. Right. And what happens when the jobs Eventually. leave? What right. happens if they leave? So we have this deep anxiety around poverty that's locking us into these cycles, which is a bigger problem we have to talk about more, that any environmental, any economic growth we get, we feel like we just have to hold on to it no matter what. And as opposed to telling people to just sow away your economic growth and save the, the equivalent of the snowy the spider owl, we need to show people a concrete economic alternative that they can plug into in order for them to get rid of like these um, environmental racism-producing plants. right? And I fear that that may not be where all of our activism and organizing goes in the midst of the nonprofitization and professionalization of movements. So if you look at the very last slide, this is the Black Lives Matter Resource Camp partnering with the Fresh Air Fund. I see. So we have this historical legacy of the Fresh Air Fund, why environmentalism, invigorating, indoctrinating people into Americanism. Mm-hmm. And now we have BLM. And again, BLM is the brand name. This is not the BLM right. organization per se. Right, right, right. But they're co-opting the BLM brand name to now say we're going to do the same thing for young black kids. And we're going to teach them about how they need to go into the wilderness and affirm their Americanness, and, you know, come back and be the same people that pass all the laws that keep stuff the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is where our movement have to be very cautious about wanting. I love hiking. I love black kids going to the woods. But there's an ideological component to it when we don't do it ourselves, when we don't have people doing like education around why black people maybe don't like the wilderness because we were chased there. Mm-hmm. The like historical memory of being chased by dogs and having to escape the South permeates a lot of people's relationship with nature. So to be able to have self-contained ways to reorient people towards nature where they see it as a resource and not just a space where white people do white people stuff, mm-hmm. it's going to be not just essential for us to benefit from nature, but to deconstruct the myth that environmentalism doesn't matter, which puts us in positions where we get stuff like environmental racism. Love it. The, that and more for us to explore. Next I love time. that question that you put at the end. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, we appreciate all you out there. Uh, so we're going to continue to do as much as we can here. 
And we appreciate you all sticking with us as we continue to go in search of Black, Black Power. power. All right, see you soon. Thank you.